Christian author and professor Tony Campolo once said that mixing politics and religion is like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't affect the manure much, but it really messes up the ice cream. The only problem with that is the Christian faith is highly political. The issue is, is our faith or our politics going to be most important? We've been looking at the book of Acts here at Southside pretty much all year this year. And if you look at the second half of Acts, where Paul is the main character, Paul the Apostle, you will see that he is mired in politics. He is depicted in Acts as speaking to and converting Roman officials. He's accused of sedition against the government. In Thessalonica, in Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7, a charge is brought against him and his companions that these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also, and they are acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there is another king named Jesus. The proclamation of the gospel by Paul in Acts was a direct challenge to the highest political authority in his world. He is constantly on trial or wrongly detained in prison. Paul in the book of Acts, embodies this principle. Christians are called to prophetic witness in the political sphere. And he embodies it because he's portrayed like Jesus, who also provided prophetic witness and was executed as a political revolutionary for it. The text we're going to look at today, snippets of it, is Acts 25, verses 13, all the way through the end of chapter 26. I'm not going to read all of that to you. Let me sum up the story. Paul's been arrested in Jerusalem. The plot to, unkill, uh, to kill him has been uncovered. He's been transported north from Jerusalem to a town called Caesarea, named after Caesar. He's been held there for two years and left by the Roman governor, Felix. In Acts 25, Felix's successor, Porcius Festus, is uh, introduced to us. And we're told that Porcius Festus doesn't know about Judaism or Christianity like his predecessor. And in the midst of his first interaction with Paul, Paul appeals his case to the emperor, which would allow him the opportunity to travel to Rome to present his case there. That's where we pick up our story today. The Jewish king, Agrippa, who is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, and his sister, Berenike, are brought in to listen to Paul. Festus informs them about Paul's situation. They want to hear. The next day, a royal audience is arranged. Agrippa and Berenike enter. Military personnel are there. The elite people of Caesarea, the governor. This is a highly charged political scene. And Paul is called upon to defend himself in that context. I encourage you to read the whole text. Because what you would see when Paul is called upon to defend himself in the political realm, he doesn't. He offers prophetic witness instead. He offers testimony to the governor, to the king about Jesus. What Acts is trying to teach us in this passage, one thing, is that we are called to prophetic witness in the political sphere. There is an election this week. But you all know that politics are bigger than elections. Everything, everything is political. In the worst sense of the term, and in the best sense of the term, because politics is about how we order our lives together in a society. 
If you're an NFL fan, I've been, uh, I'm a big fan, and I was watching just a, a couple of weeks ago, and there's a commercial that's been airing. The NFL's trying to get out the vote, and they're trying to encourage people to vote. And in this commercial, one of the players uh, who flashes on the screen there says this sentence, the issues you care about are going to be decided this November. Is it that urgent? <laughs> Is this the last election of all time? <laughs> our food, our fuel, our entertainment, our environment, all political. And the problem isn't that everything's political. That's just reality. The problem is our attitude about it. In a recent issue of the Christian Standard, Ben Kacharis, who's the pastor of Mountain Christian Church in Joppa, Maryland, wrote an article about Christians in politics. And he said this, We can barely even discuss politics anymore. We polarize over every issue, demonize those with differing viewpoints, categorize everyone with unkind labels. We learn from our favorite news channel, and no one is ever wrong. It's always the other guy, the enemy who's ruining our country, an idiotic fool who must not be tolerated. Here's my fear. I think it's more than a fear. I'm afraid that attitude has come to church. How do we respond? Acts tells us with prophetic Christian witness. I want to highlight three attitudes for us to provide good testimony to our culture when it comes to politics. The first is this. Prophetic Christian witness in the political sphere is obedience, not compromise. In other words, we cannot keep our faith and our politics separate. Acts 26 includes the third time that Paul's been called upon to offer a defense. Acts 26, verse 12, if you're reading along, in the midst of his speech, he says this, With this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, when at midday, along the road, Your Excellency, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and my companions. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He tells his story. In that political setting, when he's called upon to defend himself, he just tells his story. His story is one of obedience, and he stays on mission. This is not just some innocuous spirituality either. This is a highly charged political statement. His mission, he says, from Jesus himself is to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. In the Gospel of Luke, written by the same author as the book of Acts, in the story of the testing of Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, we read this. 
The devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And that word kingdoms of the world in the original language refers to the Roman government, the inhabited Roman world. Verse 6, And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. You hear it? Part of the power of Satan in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts is the government. Much of the Bible, in fact, presents a world created to be ruled by God but has been corrupted by the power of Satan. Paul does not compromise. His faith informs his politics, not the other way around. And that is the complexity of prophetic witness to be involved in and yet to stand apart. Now, most of us are never given the opportunity that Paul had to speak to a, a governor or a king or a president or a senator or a congressperson or a mayor. But you have friends and family and coworkers who need to see us on mission. The reality is the church has failed to provide that witness in the political realm. Again, Ben Kacharis, same article, says this. We, we being Christians, are viewed as being pawns in the hip pocket of the party. The result is a generation with many who want nothing to do with Christianity. We've long known that those rejecting Christianity and the trend becomes more acute with each generation cite our over-involvement in politics as one of the biggest turnoffs. The perception that we care more about our partisan ideology than biblical theology is hard to shake. The world we're sent to reach with the good news is often seen running the other way, not because they can't accept the claims of Jesus, but because they can't swallow the politics of those who claim to follow him. Like it or not, a watching world is largely disgusted with what they believe to be our politics. We must not compromise on the all-important mission Jesus gave us by aligning with the left or the right, liberals or conservatives, in a way that sends people on an off-ramp instead of on the road to Jesus. Don't align, but we can't keep our faith and our politics separate. How many times over the last few years have you heard something along the lines of, we're electing a president, not a pastor? That's a compromise because it doesn't allow Jesus to order our political thoughts. What do we do? We have to be critical in the best sense of the term, which means having the self-awareness to place our faithfulness to Christ over our political opinions. That is the example of Paul in this passage. He is a Roman citizen who's forced to participate in an unjust judiciary but who calls on his citizenship to advance the mission of Christ in the world. Jesus has appeared to him in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, saying, Keep courage, for just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness also in Rome. It's a political reality that makes that happen. Paul's appeal to Caesar. But the guiding principle for Paul in the later chapters of Acts is not his political rights. It is the mission of God. We can't separate our faith and our politics, but it's our politics that need to be informed by our faith. 
and obedience to Christ must take precedence over political expedience. Otherwise, we've compromised our faith. Second attitude. Prophetic Christian witness in this political sphere may cause a negative reaction, not complicity. In other words, we cannot always line up on one side. Some of you lived through Bob Dylan's Christian phase in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and when he converted to Christianity, he was known to sing Christian songs in his concerts and offer Christian messages, and people were regularly said to hold up signs during his shows that say, Jesus loves your old songs too. You can see the San Francisco Chronicle there from that time period, Bob Dylan's God-awful gospel. Paul received all kinds of negative reactions in this story and others, from mockery to threats against his life. Acts 26, verse 19. After that, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the countryside of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. I'm down to verse 24. While he was making this defense, Festus exclaimed, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking the sober truth. Indeed, the king knows about these things. And to him I speak freely, for I am certain that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, Are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Paul replied, Whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am, except for these chains. He proclaims the gospel, and people want to kill him. That refers to that story in Acts 23, in which 40 people vow never to eat again until they've killed Paul. Festus, the Roman governor, accuses him of being a crazy person. Agrippa mocks his belief system. And it's not a sincere question. In the Roman world, to change one's faith orientation was not a decision to be made quickly, especially among the elite. Paul's been wrongfully imprisoned since being arrested in Jerusalem in Acts 22. Not a single positive response to his preaching. We rarely hear about that anymore. And I think it's because many people fear the negative reaction, and so we fall prey to its opposite, complicity. In the United States, like it or not, evangelical Christians are a voting block now. Not a prophetic witness. Many Christians are glad to play along in seeking or preserving cultural power all election results now talk about how evangelicals vote. Many Christians land in a place where their faith could easily play on Fox News or be read in the New York Times. That is complicity. Lee Camp, who's a professor at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee, in his little book, Scandalous Witness, says this. To be wildly partisan about presidential elections in the midst of the late days of an empire 
to be ideologically hostile regarding small government versus big government, to be blindly belligerent regarding capitalism versus socialism without keeping all of these questions in their place of relative importance over against larger concerns, to cast aside all other concerns in favor of a government-mandated pro-life policy on the one hand versus a calloused rhetoric of pro-choice on the other, all of this represents the failure of Christianity in America. What do we do? The solution is a matter of conviction and wisdom. Paul's faith in Christ was uncompromising. Look at his responses. A threat against his life. What did he do? He didn't fight back. He entrusted himself to Christ. Paul, you're out of your mind, the governor says. He didn't defend himself. He points to the public witness of the church. Are you so quickly going to persuade me to be a Christian, Agrippa mocks? He does not mock back. He offers prayers for them. The responses to negative reactions when it comes to our faith in politics tell a lot. And Paul's reactions were to point to Christ, to the church, and to God. We can't complain about political division in our country and in our church unless we're willing to do something different. And the solution in the early church was to make their faithfulness to Christ so well known that Christians were literally viewed by the society as something else, a third race. The early church father Tertullian in his treatise To the Nations, chapter 1, verse 8 says, It is on the grounds of religious practice, not of national origin that we are deemed a third race. And so there are Romans and there are Jews and there are Christians. There's something else. There's another way. Kevin Rose, professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School, and he's written a book called World Upside Down. And in it, he says this, the alternative presented by the book of Acts is not a piecemeal substitution of Christian terms for Roman ones, but the refusal of the Roman premise and a construction of a different set of terms, a whole pattern of thinking. The universal lordship of God in Jesus leads neither to a defense to or for Rome, nor to an anti-Rome polemic. It is simply, but really, a different way. Let me rephrase that slightly for our context. The alternative presented by the book of Acts is not a piecemeal substitution of Christian terms for American ones, but the refusal of the American premise and a construction of a different set of terms or a whole pattern of thinking. The universal lordship of God in Jesus leads neither to a defense to or for America nor to an anti-America polemic. It is simply but really a different way. Politics is important, not the most important thing. If we find our politics consuming our thoughts, if our politics are leading us to dehumanize people who think differently from us, if our politics causes our TV to be stuck on a single channel or our internet browser to be stuck on a single site, 
we may have become complicit. And Christians are called to stand apart from that, and people will not like it. And they will constantly tempt us to line up on one side or the other so that we can win, to even believe that to be a Christian is to have one of those particular partisan visions. Avoid that at all costs. Be involved, yes. Be knowledgeable, yes. Be careful. Before we know it, our prophetic witness has become complicit in the very power structures that we're supposed to be witnessing to. Third attitude is this. Prophetic Christian witness in the political sphere must focus on the resurrection, not competition. We cannot allow power to take the place of our hope. Paul lived in a world dominated by power. Just this passage, Festus is a Roman governor trying to impress his higher-ups, flaunting honor and status and power. Agrippa is the king, a Roman client ruler, flaunting his honor and status and power. Berenike, his sister, at every turn of her life, from what we know, marrying an uncle who was a Roman ruler, keeping ties with her brother, even becoming the consort to Titus Caesar himself, was about her honor, her status, her power. And over against that is Paul, the imitator of Jesus. And when given the opportunity in the political context to seize honor and status and power for himself, what did he do? Listen to the story. Acts 26, verse 4. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, a life spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that I have belonged to the strictest sect of our religion and lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors, a promise that the 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. It is for this hope, Your Excellency, that I am accused by Jews. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Down to verse 22. To this day, I have had help from God, and I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles when given the opportunity to seize power. He talks about the resurrection and hope. In other words, Paul would not place his hope in politics, but in Jesus. Politics in our society is dominated by competition and power. And political power often comes by offering hope. Who can forget And it's right there, one of the most iconic political images of all time now. Or just a few years ago, proliferation of red hats with a slogan. A message of hope. Let me put this as bluntly as I know how. Do not exchange the hope of resurrection 
for competition that might gain you power. I've had the privilege of interacting throughout my life on occasion with persecuted Christians, the literal powerless. I've had Chinese Christian students uh, at LCU where I teach who've told me of friends and family and pastors who've been beaten, fined, imprisoned for nothing more than possessing a Bible or having a Christian meeting. In 2008, I took a trip to India and uh, during one of our excursions during the day, we were going from the mission out to a medical camp. Our bus was attacked. There's a picture of someone threw something through the front window trying to attack our driver so that the bus would swerve off the road. Later that week in India, I got to talk to five different church leaders who had personally experienced physical persecution, including one whose wife was killed in front of him. What I have found fascinating speaking with those people, literal powerless Christians, in contrast with much of Christianity in the United States, is I never hear those Christians hoping, hoping for cultural dominance or hoping that a Christian leader gets elected or put into power. They pray for strength, they pray for peace, and they keep doing the very thing that got them in that situation in the first place, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul was wrongfully imprisoned on numerous occasions, this time for over two years, as Acts tells it, he always, when given the opportunity, pointed people toward hope and the resurrection. Much of the political discourse of Christians in our culture never mentions the resurrection because it's focused on power. I heard a speech by a Christian leader recently. I'm not going to name names so you don't think I'm taking sides. But one line from that speech, he said this. Here's a direct quote. Christians need to understand that insofar as they do not vote or vote wrongly, they are unfaithful. Voting wrongly? That's a power grab. That is misplaced hope. Don't fall for it. The proper object of Christian hope in this passage, in the entire New Testament, throughout all of Christian history, is the resurrection of the dead. Not Constantine's Rome, not Charlemagne's Holy Roman Empire, not the Christian Europe of the Middle Ages, not the colonization of Africa or South America, not the Puritan voyage to the new world, and certainly not what happens on Tuesday or in November of 2024. Our hope is resurrection. That brings resurrection life to the world, not politics. A Christian involvement in politics ought to be a light-bearing exercise that brings resurrection story to dark places. This is what our world needs, not more of the same competition and power grabs. Patrick Schreiner, who was here a few weeks ago preaching in his new book, Political Gospel, says this, Paul did not view his audience with Roman governors or Caesar as opportunities for power. He didn't think, if I get in good with them, then I can do so much for the kingdom. No. Ultimately, his audience with the state was an opportunity to preach the gospel. The fundamental way we can be politically subversive is by proclaiming God's kingdom and the gospel of hope, forgiveness, and equality. The best way we can be politically subversive is not marching downtown, 
not seeking to install new judges who agree with us, not electing presidents who will promote Christian values, although some of these things might be limited goods. No. The best thing we can do is to establish strong, political, not partisan, churches who proclaim the gospel of Christ that transcends any earthly party or politician. This is our primary political witness. Can you do that? And not get caught up in all the, the incessant arguing and fighting, the dehumanization and the demonization of those who differ, the fight for power. Can you provide that sort of testimony, not just on Tuesday, but every day? The world needs the hope that you and I have. And this passage says, don't let politics get in the way. 